beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be focusing this afternoon on Psalm 80. We're going to be focusing on this psalm under the theme, Praying for Restoration. Praying for Restoration, especially coming to focus on that refrain that's in verses 3, 7, and 19, and that amplifies somewhat, actually, see it changes a little bit each time as we work through. But as we look at that refrain, first we're going to have to look at really Israel's trouble, the situation that caused them to cry out again and again and again. If you look at this psalm, Psalm 80, and if you read it carefully, you see that it's, it's filled with images. It's filled with different pictures that almost paint a scene of Israel. There's the picture there of the shepherd of Israel, the geography picture of different tribes and different regions of Israel. But then the dominant picture of the psalm is actually this vine and what's happened with this vine. And the psalm is, especially to an ancient Israel, almost like a landscape painting being laid out. Now many landscape paintings are beautiful and many artists have made their living by painting beautiful things. But if you've gone to some of the old art galleries of Europe, from time to time you will come across landscape paintings that are not so beautiful, that depict scenes after wars of pillaging and of looting. And there's one of those paintings, and I've never been able to find it back, but somehow it got burned into an image in my mind, and it's a little family sitting in front of a corner of a village scene, and the gate is hanging askew, and the door is kicked in, and the walls are broken down, and what it is, it's a scene after an army had come through and had pillaged that scene, and now their farm fields, the, the crops are taken away. <laughs> The food has been ripped out of the ground, and there sits a little huddled family mourning their loss and struggling. You can see in their faces with that gloomy scene that surrounds them and the loss to an enemy. And God's people in history have endured these kinds of trials. One of the great challenges, I think, of growing up in our generation, or my generation, has been growing up in a time of what could be called sort of peak civilization, a time when we always had full bellies, some of us, when we lived in relative peace, and when we've never had to wake up to a battlefield scene, many of us. We've been blessed to live for generations in peace. But it was not so long ago that many of our grandparents and even my own father woke up as a little boy to scenes like this back in Europe. Scenes where hard things were happening. And it's from those people and those generations that God's people can learn how to pray. 
even as we face our own challenges and trials and difficulties on different levels. We're going to be looking at this under the theme, Praying for Restoration. First, we'll look at Israel's trouble. Second, faithful petition. And then third, the Lord's salvation. Israel's trouble. Well, the first part of Israel's trouble, and as the psalmist cries out in prayer, is actually this sense that the Lord doesn't seem to be listening. Notice verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. O God of Israel, incline your ear to me, the psalmist is saying. And there's a sense behind that of is God listening? Does he hear our prayers? And notice verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people. Here, this psalmist is looking out over the landscape of Israel, and what he's seeing and the devastation that he's seeing, that we'll get to in a moment, is starting to make him wonder, is God not listening? Does he not hear anymore? Why are you angry, O Lord, and, and how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people. What a predicament, what a plight for somebody who's a praying person, struggling with and wrestling with. Is God listening? Is he actually angry against our prayers? Is this something that we as God's people and as his churches ought to review and think about again? How many people in our culture, or at least the evangelical culture, would even entertain the possibility that God may be angry with the prayers of his people? That perhaps his prayers, or the prayers, have become trite, or superficial, or unbelieving, or perhaps even irreverent, altogether light. Vain. And this psalmist begins with this prayer Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Sometimes God's people, they weep for a time and they wait for a time for an answer. And this does still happen. And yet we know that we, as New Testament believers, as Christians, have some great hopes in this respect. More has been revealed to us. It's been revealed to us that the Son of God ever lives to make intercession for his people. It's been revealed to us that we actually don't pray as we ought to often. And yet, because the finished work of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that when we pray in the name of the chief shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in faith in him, and repentance, we have a great hope. And so on the one hand, this theme of wondering if the Lord is listening, praying that the Lord would give ear, wondering if the Lord is angry with his people, ought to sober us with respect to prayer and cause us to consider that there have even been prayers of God's people that, as it were, Though the Lord God surely knew what they were, did not appear to be heard, yet on the other hand, we can look back with the light of the New Testament and in Jesus Christ, 
come to a greater hope. But then there's also a second trouble here. So the first trouble is, is God's listening? The second trouble the psalmist has is, will the shepherd restore the flock? And in these first few verses, verse 1 and 2, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. So there's a sense of the Lord God having withdrawn. And then before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Those three tribes, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, were just to the north of Judah. And most commentators, most interpreters, take this psalm to be written in one of the times when probably the Assyrians came through. And if you take the later pictures, the word pictures later on in the psalm of the hedges being broken down and the fruit being plucked and the boar out of the the boar of the woods uprooting Israel, that this is a picture of a time when the northern part of Israel has been invaded by the Assyrians. And there's pillaging, and there's looting that has happened. And now the people of Judah are looking to the north, and they're lamenting, and they're praying for their brothers and sisters and for the other tribes to the north of them. And they're interceding for their loved ones who have been carried off. And it shows something of the loving heart of God's people. This prayer that the shepherd would come and gather in and bring back and and save, really, those lambs that are being carried off, these three tribes representing them, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, praying that the Lord would stir up his strength and save their cousins, their uncles, their relatives. If we think of the way this psalmist prayed, I wonder, how often do we as the Reformed pray for perhaps the Unitarians? Now, the Unitarians, we can't even say any longer that they're Christian. They've completely lost God's Word. But here you see in Israel, these idolaters to the north had lost the Word of God. And now as a consequence, they're being carried off into slavery. They're completely losing touch. They've already lost touch with all that is true and good and holy and rational. They're being carried off into slavery. And one could have said, the psalmist could have said, well, that's their just desserts. That's what they deserve. And maybe the Unitarians are the worst example, but do we not see in our age church after church after church being given over and dragged away into slavery, as it were, more and more different denominations and churches in our lifetimes over the last few decades? And we see, perhaps even in our own families, young people, children, nephews, nieces, falling into slavery to the wicked one. And here the psalmist intercedes for those long-lost cousins, so to speak, for those ones who are getting, yes, their just desserts, but is praying that the Lord would stir up his strength and come and save us. Now, could we not, as God's people, not only be interceding, and I hope you are if you have 
grandchildren who have been pulled off into slavery to sin, or children. By name, like here, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, I hope you have a a list of those who you pray for again and again and again, and you pray that the Lord would gather them back into his covenant people and that he would wake them up and deliver them out of slavery. But could we not, as God's people, be praying also for those that are further afield, those churches that have lost their way? And instead of pointing at them only and saying, well, there's a cautionary tale, and there's a church that went liberal, and there's another one, and there's another one, could we not also be on our knees praying, Lord, O shepherd of Israel, would you not raise up shepherds? Would there not be times of revival and of preaching of the gospel and of conviction of sin that would again spread through the churches of Western civilization? That the Lord would stir up his strength, as it were, and come and save us. Notice God's people here. They had become a laughingstock. Verse 6. You've made us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Children, have you ever had a whole group of other children laugh at you? I can remember this happening to me a few times as a child in school. You have to speak up in class, and maybe you stumble over some words. Maybe you say something wrong. And all of a sudden, or maybe even happens in your own home, everybody's laughing at you. You're being mocked. And for some of you, depending on your character, it, it really hurts, doesn't it? Bothers you. Troubles you to be mocked and to be laughed at and to be a laughing stock. But here, Israel, the people of God, the reputation of God's people, Those that are going by are laughing at them, mocking them, mocking them, laughing at them, and it's uncomfortable. Now, if we were to have an honest view of this kind of situation in our day, there it was that the people of God now were being picked away more and more. Invaders were coming in and taking away some from the northern tribes, and they would come in deeper and deeper and deeper and invade the land and Here they thought their gods were better than the God of Israel, and they made light of this once powerful nation. Think now of the church of Jesus Christ, also in our time. The scandals, the fallen leaders, again and again. The enemy pointing the finger calling us backwards, foolish, making light of God's law. And what has that done to God's people in this ancient time? You've fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. There's a sadness that has set into this psalmist and to the believers of that time They're deeply mourning. There's an evidence here of repentance. I thought it was interesting that in your study after Sunday mornings that you are studying 
a book that's all about repentance. If there ever were to be a renewal in a nation, it would start with a renewal in the church. And where that renewal in the church would start would be with a realistic understanding of what sin has done, what it's done to the reputation of the church, but then ultimately what the selfishness and the sin of the church has done to the reputation of God. And that God's people, His church, would come to a place of admitting their selfishness, admitting their need of great help, admitting that their walls have been broken down and that the reputation of the church and the scandals that come into the church more and more and the idolatry that comes into the church more and more, undoubtedly even through some of the screens of some in this room, allowing those old ancient idols right into the homes of the people of God's church. And unless there is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a true mourning over these things, a weeping and a praying for help that understands God's vineyard is a mess, will there be restoration? You know, if you have a house that you live in for a time, it begins to fall apart. And it needs some work here and there. Maybe those of you who are older have noticed this. You can either sort of live with it and let it go and get comfortable with the house falling down around you or at some point get stirred up and see the need that something needs to be done. There's a problem here that that roof is going to start to leak Now there's things falling apart, and here actually the image is not of a house, it's of a vineyard. Israel was like a beautiful garden. It's like an Eden picture in verses 8 through 11. It's a vineyard that was brought from Egypt, and it's telling the story of of how Israel was taken from a land of slavery and then brought to this good and beautiful land, and that it was like a spreading and a fruitful vine that covered the whole land. But now God has broken down the hedges the surrounding walls or the fences. And now passers-by, they, they laugh at that farm picture. It's a joke to them, and they steal and they take whatever they want. There's pillaging and there's looting and there's a boar that's running around in this vineyard. I'm sure some of you have read the stories in the news. You've heard about the wild boars that are down in Texas and even moving their way up down north more and more. I know in the part of Canada that I'm in, now there's even some, just a few counties over from us. And when there's a wild boar that gets into the fields, how much damage it can do. I've read billions of dollars in the south of damage as they root up and as they turn over and as they eat the roots of many crops. And here the sections, there are sections of Israel that are even burnt out burned with fire, cut down, verse 16. And so this scene is a broken down, a beat up, a sad scene. Some could grow bitter. 
Some could just try to blind themselves to a scene like this. Some could get cynical, but not this psalmist. Not this Asaph or this family of Asaph. No, he's learned in the midst of such a struggle to faithfully petition the Lord. Faithful because he knows the Lord. What's interesting in this prayer and also what we looked at this morning That God's children, despite what it seems like the silence, despite the difficulty or the darkness of a situation, know who the Lord is. Prayer honors God. That may seem simple. But prayer in itself, coming to the Lord God and calling upon his name and praying for his help with simple faith, brings glory and honor to his name. And prayers such as this one for restoration, we know, have been answered in Jesus Christ and ultimately will be answered. But notice how intimately this psalmist knows God. He knows the Lord God as the shepherd of Israel. He trusts that the Lord God has the strength and the power to come and save He knows the Lord God as Jehovah, the covenant name of God. Anytime you see Lord in capital letters, verse 4 and then verse 19. Jehovah, the God who truly exists, the self-existing God, the real God, the true God. This psalmist, he trusts in God's ability and his strength to deliver his people. And it is a fervent prayer of a righteous man, this psalm. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And here you see in verses 3, 7, 14, and 19 that this psalmist goes through this cycle, actually, of reviewing the troubles that we just reviewed, the difficulties, the challenges, the needs, but then returns to the Lord God each time with a repeated prayer. Now, some might ask, when they come to a prayer like this one or some of the other psalms that are very, very repetitive, this is less so than some others, what then is a vain repetition? Should we be praying over and over and over, restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved? The answer actually is, yes, we should. In the right spirit, And in the right way, when that is prayed with honesty, yes, prayers should be repeated. What is a vain repetition? Well, the word vain has to do with emptiness. There's an idea of prayer in paganism and amongst some Christians that seem to think, at least from some of the music that is out there, they seem to think that if you just say certain words enough times, in themselves, somehow that will get God's attention. That is a vain repetition, an empty repetition, just saying something over and over and over and over mindlessly, thinking that you will get attention from God. 
That would be a vain repetition. But to pour out your troubles before the Lord and to review the difficulties that you perhaps have been going through in your life or in the life of your nation or in the life of church, to bring those before the Lord and then to pray again and again that the Lord would save you is actually God-glorifying and is exactly the kind of prayer that the church needs in our age. We need to be praying this. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Restore us, O God. And in the King James translation, it's actually turn us again, O God. It really has the same meaning. Return us to our previous state. See, this psalmist is looking back at the way things were, especially under men like King David and King Solomon when there was this great, growing, beautiful empire that God had given and these, these people that God had blessed. He's praying for a restoration of Israel, for a hope for when there were those times where the tribes of Israel came to Jerusalem, when they streamed down and they came in unity to worship the Lord. And so this would have been, on the most literal level, a prayer for Israel to be restored. And we may pray the same for nations in our day, but that's actually not ultimately the point. You see, the psalmist and the people of Israel had to learn And we learn from the scriptures that what they were actually praying for was a shadow of what is far greater. What is far greater is what we looked at for a little bit this morning in Revelation 19, that the people of God one day will be restored around his throne, will be gathered in to that new Eden, that new heavens, and that new earth, where all of these prayers will ultimately be fulfilled. But the restoration that the psalmist is praying for And the restoring and the returning is ultimately fulfilled, of course, in Jesus Christ. And in his resurrection. And in his new life. That there would be a return, actually, and even more than a return, to the state of Eden. See, these garden pictures here and the vineyard pictures, they recall Eden. And there is a deep, Knowledge in the heart of the believer that this broken down, beat up world is not what it was meant to be. That it's cursed. And we yet now wrestle with the curse. But we may and we should and we can pray, restore us, O God, return us to that previous state, but now even more, even better, to the greater state that we hope for when the Lord will return and renovate this earth once for all. Burn it with fire. Make it new. Make it right. Make it good. And we should ultimately be praying for that. We may and we should and we can pray for restoration in the church, restoration in the nation. We should be praying that the Lord would raise up leaders. Here the psalmist towards the end will pray for a son of man to be risen up praying also then for a a king to rise up and to be favored and blessed so there could be a national restoration. But we know that there's a better restoration coming. Restore us, O God. Take us back to that previous state. 
Cause your face to shine. The second part of the repetition. What does this mean, cause your face to shine? It's not a metaphor, it's not a picture we usually use every day, but I think you can all picture it. I think we probably all know certain people that have very expressive faces. And some of you have known people, maybe a grandmother or an aunt or a parent, that when you walk into the room, their face lights up. I had a grandmother like this. She just died, actually, a couple of weeks ago at 103 years old. I remember walking into the nursing home about four years ago, and she already had been losing her mind. She couldn't recognize people very often. And I remember walking in and talking to her. She was confused, and she had no idea who I was. And then all of a sudden, She said, Robert, and her face broke open into a huge smile, and her face lit right up, and for a moment ago, been confused and cloudy. You see that recognition and that light in her eyes and that friendship and that love that maybe a grandparent or a parent has for you, and their favor comes out of their face. And to an ancient person, they would especially think in this way, Cause your face to shine of the face of a king. Remember when Esther was nervous to go in and see the king? Wondering how he would look upon her if she was welcome there? You know how when somebody comes to the door in a house, you can see right away, are you welcome or not? Well, imagine when a king had great power over you and you were coming to an audience before them and and if that king smiled at you, And his face lit up with recognition. And if you were welcome in his courtroom, that was a really good sign. That meant he favored you. He'd hear your case. He'd attend to your needs. You'd be a friend of the king. And here the psalmist is is desiring that God's face would shine upon his people, that his favor, actually his, his grace and his goodness would rest again upon that land, that they would not experience his frown or his anger, but that he would cause his face to shine. We cannot take God's favor and that his face would shine on a nation or on a church for granted. There is a false theology in our day of cheap grace. And no, repentance is not some kind of key that if you have enough repentance and you have to go to a certain depth of repentance that then the Lord will accept you. You have to be careful about those teachings. But at the same time, if a nation or a church or a people or a family is continuing to live in rebellion and sin and throws out a few vain prayers here and there as a matter of rote repetition or comes to church now and again but really lives their life for their own glory and selfishness. They cannot expect that God's face will shine upon them. And here we see this picture that the psalmist knows they're in a difficult plight, they're in a, a tough situation, but that there is a hope that the Lord's face would shine. 
And then, now, and we shall be saved. That word saved has to do with being liberated, being freed, especially in this context. Think of the liberation of Europe in 1944 and 45, that when the people of God actually in those nations often praying and then working very hard and the, the allied armies coming across, they liberated people and they danced for joy in the streets. Here is a prayer. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. There is this hope that if God's favor rests upon them, they would be saved. What does this psalmist know? He knows that at root, they needed God's help. They could not save themselves. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Yes, we are called to be diligent, to work hard, to teach to our children and our young people the value and the benefit of hard work and putting in time, being diligent in their lessons. But we must understand this truth. Unless the Lord's face shines upon us, unless we pray for his favor and his patience and his kindness towards us, we shall not be saved. Ultimately, this is a prayer for the presence of God. Now the beautiful thing is, we know that the Lord answered this prayer in two main ways. He did give salvation to his people. By the way, one more thing quickly about that repetition. It amplifies in verse 3, 7, 14, and 19. You'll notice that extra words are added in each time to the repetition. So it grows. It becomes, verse 7, O God of hosts, not just O God. So O God of all the armies of angels. And then, verse 14, we return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. It's actually the same meaning in a little bit different pictures. And then, verse 19, it's restore us, O Lord God of hosts. So not only is there a repetition in the psalm, it keeps growing and building and amplifying. But now we'll come to the answer to that prayer, God's salvation, in verse 17 through 19. Let your hand... Be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man who you made strong for yourself. The psalmist, in his time and place, would have been thinking, the son of man and the man who you made strong for yourself, he would have been thinking upon, the man of God's right hand, the king of Israel. He'd be thinking of the sons of David. And in the literal sense, they would have thought that God needed and they needed God to raise up a king to fight their armies, to fight the battles, to push out the Assyrians. And they would have hoped for shepherds of Israel to come and to deliver them. Sadly, though, we know the rest of that story. The sons of David fell into sin. They couldn't manage their own households, much less the whole nation. More and more sin and wickedness crept in. Some did better than others. There were times of restoration. Perhaps God's people were greatly encouraged when there was a, a King Josiah and a reformation and a restoration under him. Or God's people who sang this psalm were greatly encouraged when there was a King Hezekiah. And we can and we should pray the Lord would raise up sons of men like that for our times 
And we should hope and pray that the Lord does. But when we look back on this psalm and we look back from our time and we look back actually at the failures of the sons of David, we should see that the answer to the prayers of this psalm are fully and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What's interesting about this psalm, if you take the whole picture of the vine, in John 15, the Lord Jesus uses himself as the picture of that vine. When we abide in him, then we have life. The Lord Jesus is our Israel, so to speak. Did you know that the dominant picture in the New Testament is not just Christ in us, it's us in him. We're supposed to dwell in him, live in him. We're supposed to abide in the vine. And the good news of the New Testament, as we look at the light of John 15 on a psalm like this, and if you look back on it, you can read perhaps John 15 this evening that the Lord Jesus Christ was claiming to now be the vine which could not thrive and survive in that literal human way. It was bound to fail in this fallen, in this cursed earth. But the good news is, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the vine, He was actually the one who was plucked up, who was under the fires of God's wrath who was taken outside the gates of the city and who ever lives now to make intercession for us. And so when we look back on a psalm like this and the plight of the vine, we should be reminded of the good news that he now is the vine and that he is our Israel. And we are called to dwell in him and find life in him and to be united to him by faith. And so there is a hope for eternal vitality. But even more so than that, there's a clear fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ of this phrase, the Son of Man. Here the psalmist may originally have been thinking at first of an Israelite king, but ultimately hoping for a Messiah. As you know that the Lord Jesus Christ actually took that title, the Son of Man, as his preferred title. The second Adam. God with us. The one who displayed the glory of God's grace and mercy and his kindness towards the creatures made in his image by taking upon himself the form of a bondservant. And being made in the form of a man and coming down to this earth. And that prayer, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself, is fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then especially in his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ now is the man of God's right hand. He always was. But now, in his victory over sin and death, and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, who even is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, Romans 8, verse 34, that that prayer has now been answered. 
But the hand of the Father upon the Son raised Him from the grave. He was raised for our justification. The picture of the resurrection is actually that the Son was raised. He was risen up as a stamp of approval upon His finished work. And He was raised from the grave and then ascended all the way into heaven as the Lord of lords and the King of kings in the fulfillment of the Son of David who now rules with a rod of iron and who does, by pouring out His Spirit, revive His people. And now that we are in Christ and we look upon or look to the Son of Man who is eternal and who has been made strong and who has had the victory over sin and death, now we will not turn back from you. Verse 18 teaches us a hint already of those doctrines of grace. That the Lord will preserve His people. That those who have faith in Him, no matter how wicked and dark this world gets, no matter how much psychological pressure there may be in media and from government and in workplaces, that God's children can have the confidence we will not turn back from you. Not because we and ourselves are strong enough. Oh no, we are not. But because He is mighty to save and no one will snatch His sheep from His hand. He will keep them. He will hold them and He will sustain them. And so we who look back at this, and by the way, this prayer Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. We could, we could speak much of the answer of the work of the Holy Spirit also. In Luke 11, verse 13, the Lord Jesus makes it clear that actually, just before that, he teaches the Lord's Prayer and then he teaches about praying over and over and over again and coming to the Lord's Prayer. And then he teaches Luke 11 verse 13, the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And when we're praying this prayer, what we're praying for, return we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. We're praying that the Lord would pour out His Spirit upon His church. And the good news is, when we look back at a psalm like this and we look back at the plight of Israel, yes, we can see a certain plight of the church in our age or even a certain plight in our nations nationally. We can see a great need for restoration. But when we look back, humbly confessing our sin, we can see a clearer, greater hope than the psalmist could yet see. We now know of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that He did visit His vine. Verse 14, the psalmist prayed, visit this vine. The Lord Jesus came, as we saw this morning, to a broken down nation. And the poor and the needy streamed to him, and they confessed their sin, and they confessed their need. And his face shone upon them. And they were healed, and they were restored. And then even after also, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples feeling the shadow of persecution. They prayed in an upper room. 
And they prayed. And they prayed. And the Lord poured out His Spirit upon them. And His face shone upon them. And there were tongues of fire on their heads. And they were stirred up now to zeal. And the face of the Lord shone upon them. And to this day, the Lord still sends His Word. And today is a day of salvation. And we must and we may and we should pray this same prayer over and over again. Trusting that in His Son and by His Spirit, His face does shine upon His church, His faithful people, and that we shall be saved. And that if we go through a time of present darkness, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with what we will yet see. And so we can look forward as God's people to a time of full and final restoration and that this prayer, which may we pray it again and again, will be fully, fully answered.